This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, and if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, then you can open up there and we'll be there in just a minute. But if, uh, I, this past week I was thinking about a conversation I had with Quentin, our youth director, a few weeks ago back in January. He had just come back from Christmas vacation, and we were kind of catching up. And I said, you know, how's, how's everything at school? Have you guys started yet? He goes, yeah, we actually started this week. And I said, well, do you have a lot of homework? And he goes, no, you know how it is. That first day, they just give you the syllabus and they send you on your way. And as soon as he said the word syllabus, I immediately had flashbacks. And I started, like, twitching and getting anxious because I remembered back in, in college and in seminary, that first day of class when you get the syllabus, right? You get the syllabus and it's got everything in there. The professor hands you this book of uh, this packet of paper that's as as thick as the book that you're going to be using for the text, and you're thinking, oh man, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be fun. I've already got 3,000 pages to read, and he just handed me another 1,000 pages in this syllabus here to read through. Uh, And so, you know, you get that anxiety. But let's be honest, every single one of us, no matter where we are, no matter what kind of student we were, what's the first thing we do? What do you look for? You look for the grading scale, right? You flip past, you know, course objectives, course outcomes. You know, what are, what are your assignments going to be? I, I don't care about that. I don't want to know any of that. Just tell me what is the grading scale. And we flip to the very, very back, and we find our grading scale. Because we want to know what's it going to take. For some of us, what's it going to take to get an A? And then for some of us, what's it going to take to just get over that bar, Right? Like, we want to know, how much can I do, how little can I do, and still get by? I found this, this uh, quote online this past week, your homework is 5% of your grade. Nice, no homework, right? If it's only 5% of my grade, I cannot do it and still get a 95. And I love, this is uh, from Garth Rosell. This is church history from the Reformation. And he puts this underneath the grading scale. It says, an A means conspicuous excellence. He says, a B is exceeding the minimum, C is satisfactory work, D means passing but unsatisfactory, and F means you failed the course. And so, depending on your personality, now if you're like me, I'm a little bit, little bit of an overachiever. And so, my first thing when I look at it is, where's the extra credit? Like, how do I get above a 100? How do I, how do I just knock this out of the park? How do I make sure that everyone in this class knows that I'm the smartest one in this class, that the professor knows that I'm the smartest one in this class, and that I know that I'm the smartest one in this class? Like, how do I get to that point and make it, oh, like, not even close to the bar? And then there's friends, like my friend David, when I was in seminary, he was married, had kids, and uh, he had time that he needed to be spending with his family. And so shooting for that A-plus wasn't necessarily his top priority. He was, he was perfectly happy with that B-minus, because, hey, I got mastery of, of the content, I got what I need, I know what I'm doing, but man, just to strive for that A, that's, that's three, four extra hours per day, per week, that I'm not spending with my kids and with my family. There's more important things. And so for, for my friend David, he would open it up, and he would look at that grading scale from a completely different perspective. Like, what do I have to do to just barely get over the bar? And i got to be honest, there were a couple times in college when I felt the exact same way. I am not a math person, right? But for my major, I had to take one math class, college algebra, And guess what? I wanted to know how low is that bar, 
And what can I do to just barely get over it? And so I came home. I, I left school in the fall semester, after the fall semester of my freshman year, had a 4.0, right? I come home. I'm signed up for college algebra in a two-week mini-semester. And I'm thinking, okay, it's just going to transfer as a credit. I can just get a C. Even if I get a D, then I still get the credit for the course. I don't have to really do anything. So I go, and I get my C. And I'm, I'm like, hey, pass it, done. Don't ever have to worry about algebra again unless I need to figure out how much mulch I need to put in my flower beds. Then I'll use the formulas there. But that's the only time I'm ever going to use algebra ever again. And so I get my C, and I get back to school, and I'm, I'm online, and I'm checking my, my, uh, my grades. And I see that I've gone from a 4.0 to a 3.25. And I go to the registrar's office, and I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I had a 4.0, I left, and, and I took this class over the break, but you just transfer in the credit. She said, no, at this school, we actually transfer in the actual grade. So I'm freaking out. You know, my parents now know that I got a C in college, which they were helping me with college at this time, and they're not very happy because they expected more out of me. And the only thing I could come up with to say was, Mom, Dad, C stands for credit, all right? And... Uh, that did not make them very happy. I ended up paying them back for that class. Uh, so C stands for credit. Some of you might even say, hey, D stands for diploma, depending on the class. But we all are the same. We want to know where is the bar? Where is that bar set? What do I have to do to either get way over it or way below it? And let's, let's just have a show of hands. How many of you would say that you're like, I, wanna, I just want to barely get over the bar? Like, I'm going to do enough to pass the class, but, but I'm, not, I'm not wasting my time on anything extra. How many of you would say, I'm an overachiever? Put your hands up. Now, how many of you are looking around at the overachiever and would say, yeah, you need to put your hand down? Uh, a little self-awareness there. No, but, but we all are interested in where is the bar? Where is the bar? We want a box to check. We want a rule to follow. And for the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were no different. But in, what they had done is they had taken this rule-following, this box-checking mentality, and they had carried that over into their relationship with God. And that became the center of their spiritual life, was rules to follow and a box to check. Now, if you've been following along with Jesus, with this story in Mark, then you've seen this interaction with the Pharisees all the way back, uh, starts in chapter 2, where they're introduced, and, and you're, you, we know the eventual outcome, right? We all know what happens at the end of the story, where Jesus is handed over and he's crucified. We know that where this is going, but what we've seen this past week, and what we're going to continue to see, is that this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees is going to continue to escalate. It's going to continue to heighten. And we see it very clearly there in chapter 2, uh, where we're introduced to them. And now we're going to see it in chapter 3. It comes in just with a fury. Um, like we've said before, the Gospel of Mark is very, very fast-paced. And so we're going to see this just kind of go from, from 0 to 60 in almost no time at all, this conflict with, with the Pharisees. But as I, as I was preparing for this week, I did a little bit of reading ahead, and there was something that stood out to me in Mark chapter 3, and, and I remembered back in chapter 1 that I had read something similar, and as you read through it this week, maybe you're remembering back to chapter 1, and, and you remember a story or two that, uh, where Jesus is, he's either cast out a demon, or one time he heals a man with leprosy, and then he says, make sure that you tell no one. And I read that, and I'm like, I, I thought we were supposed to tell everyone about Jesus. I mean, I thought the whole point of, of being a Christian was to then go out and tell everyone else about Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus himself is telling the demons 
don't make me known. And then he's telling this man who he just healed from leprosy, uh, don't tell anyone, which kind of blows my mind because it's like, I just had fingers falling off of me and now my fingers are restored and you don't think people are going to notice? Uh, I, was, I was lame yesterday and now I can walk and you're telling me don't tell anyone, like they're not going to notice? But as I started thinking about that, I came across this verse, chapter 3, verse 12 says this. So he's just cast out, uh, he's, he's come across some unclean spirits. It says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, those possessed fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strongly warned them not to make him known. And this just blows my mind that why would he say this? And I started thinking about it. What is the point of Jesus saying, don't make me known? Don't tell anyone that I healed you. Don't let it be known that I'm the son of God. And as I thought about it more and more, it it made practical sense. Because Jesus knew that his time on earth was limited. He knew why he had come. He knew what his purpose was. And he knew that someday he was going to die and then ascend to be with the Father. But that God had given him a mission to prepare and to equip a group of followers to take the message of his death and resurrection on behalf of our sin to the entire world. And so as we see things moving along rapidly, there are times when Jesus says, okay, we need to slow this down a little bit. I've only got three years. Jesus only ministered publicly for three years. I've got three years to get these 12 men ready to reach the entire world. I need more time. I need you to not say anything. And and what I love, again, that comes out in this passage and then in Mark chapter 1, is that as soon as Jesus says, be quiet to the demons, they shut their mouths. The authority and the power that Jesus had just gives me chills. Like if I were to roll my sleeves up, I would have, you could see my goosebumps, but it gives me chills to see the power and authority they had to be able to say, be silent. And they were silent. And for the rest of the gospel, when we read, we see that the demons were silent. They had nothing to say. And so Jesus has this time to be preparing his disciples for what's coming. But in the meantime, as he's living this out, there's this tension between him and the Pharisees that's going to continually come up. And it started, it started way back uh, with Jesus' baptism. You know, I, I think about Jesus and what's happening here, and, and what I picture is kind of Jesus standing at the top of a hill with a giant boulder, and he just kind of gives it a little push. And as it goes down the hill, it begins to pick up steam, and it's rolling faster and faster and faster. And so that push that Jesus gives, that first push, is when he's baptized. And John baptizes him. The voice comes from heaven and says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the the people there witness the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And that's the beginning. And then we read that Jesus goes into the synagogue. And on that, sun, on that Saturday, the Sabbath, he reads from Isaiah about the, the Messiah who would come. And he says, today in your hearing, these words are fulfilled. Right? And he's basically saying, I am the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for for the last 2,000 years since the time of, of Abraham. I am the Messiah. It's me. And so he just pushes that rock right down the hill, and it begins to pick up steam. And he's, he's ministering in the middle, working in the midst of social, political, and religious pressures. 
that are going to come up over and over and over again. And like I said, we're going to see it come in with a fury in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Turn with me there if you have your Bibles. If not, it will be on the screen. Uh, really encourage you, if you have a, a, a hard copy Bible, man, I encourage you to bring it with you. I know it's on your phone, it's on your iPad, but I'm old school, and I believe there's something about being able to write notes right there in your Bible and, and being able to find it later. Uh, so I really encourage you, bring that with you on Sunday mornings. Um, and, and we'll study this word together. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He entered the synagogue again. All right, so in chapter 2, chapter 1 and 2, he's been in the synagogue before. Chapter 2, just before this, he's already had a confrontation with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. And he's already explained, look, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So you need to deal with that, right? You need to get your mind around that, that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so... Typical Mark fashion, he's moving the story right along fastly, quickly. And he says, he, now he entered the synagogue again, and it was a Sabbath. And a man was there who had been paralyzed, had a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they, that is the Pharisees, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So, as I mentioned before, the Pharisees had built their entire lives around this rule-keeping, box-checking religion. They had taken everything that, that God had said in the Old Testament and they had built up upon it in a sinful way. They had twisted it to become this very oppressive uh, religion that God never intended. And Jesus comes along and completely disregards their box checking, their rule following. And instead of focusing on, I have to do this and check this box and I have to do this and check this, this box, Jesus comes along with a message and a demonstration of grace and mercy and runs completely across the grain of what the Pharisees believed to be the most important. They believed that keeping all these rules and checking the boxes was the absolute most important thing. And if, I, if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I can see how they could read the Old Testament and come away with that. Like, have you ever read the book of Leviticus? God is kind of particular about how he wants us to relate to him, right? I mean, there are so many laws there. But they completely missed the heart of God in that. They missed what God was going after. They missed that God was really trying to show them that, hey, even if you were to try your best to keep all these, you could never meet my standard. They missed that the whole point was God demonstrating that you cannot come to me unless I come to you. You cannot be without sin. There's nothing, no amount of good works you can do to overcome your sin. And they missed that. And instead they turned it into, as long as I check the boxes, then I've got good relationship with God. And so Jesus comes and he challenges their thinking. He challenges their way of life. And the the crazy thing is that as he comes, the people recognize already, it's already been said of Jesus, that he teaches as one who has authority. He teaches as one who has authority. And so the Pharisees, who were the center of the Jewish religion in the first century, they were the guys that everybody went to. And now there's this new kid on the block who's coming along, and he's saying, look, yes, you ought to strive to live like the Pharisees do, to pay attention to their teaching, right? Listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Yes, you should strive to keep God's law, but don't let it become the sole focus of your relationship with God. Let that relationship be one that you recognize is one that you can't overcome by good works. 
And so Jesus comes along and he's teaching this and he begins to gain popularity. And not only is he gaining a crowd of people coming around him, but when there's a crowd gathering, more and more and more people come. And as people come, the sick and the lame and the deaf and the blind and the demon-possessed come and they're healed. And there's this mighty, powerful movement of God taking place. And yet the Pharisees, for whatever reason, because of their, their commitment to checking boxes and following rules, they miss it. They miss what God is doing. And so we read in verse 3, it says, He told the man with the paralyzed hand, stand up before us. Now I don't know how this man got into the synagogue, if he was a regular there. Part of me kind of thinks that because the Pharisees were trying to trap him, maybe this guy was a plant. Like they're going to see, they're going to test Jesus to see what he's going to do here. And this is what happens. It says, he told the man with the paralyzed hand, stand up. And then he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. The Pharisees remained silent. Jesus asks them a rhetorical question. He says, which one is more in keeping with the idea of God's law of the Sabbath? Which one is, is more in line? Which one is more consistent with the purpose of the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? Because when you have the power, within, it's within your ability to do good and you don't do that. You withhold good from someone. That is evil, right? Can we agree on that? That if you have the power to do good for someone else and you choose not to, that that then becomes evil. And Jesus had the power to heal this man. But they're looking, and they're looking to see, hey, is Jesus going to break the Sabbath laws and heal this man on the Sabbath? Now, what you have to understand is this man's hand was paralyzed. This was not a life-threatening issue. The Sabbath laws that the Pharisees had, they allowed for a doctor to save someone's life, but they were only allowed to do as much work necessary as to sustain them till the next day, and then they could really save their life. And it's like, are you not hearing that? I mean, have you ever said something and as it's coming out of your mouth, you're like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. You know, and as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, do you really hear what you're saying? You're saying that we can only just barely sustain him long enough to get him over to the next day and then save his life? Like, is that really a good thing? Is that really demonstrating the value of life that God shows? And so Jesus comes along, and this man doesn't have a life-threatening issue. And yet Jesus is going to heal him. Jesus is going to heal him, and it's going to drive the Pharisees insane. They knew if they were to answer, they knew what the right answer was. They knew what the right answer was, but if they answered, they would condemn themselves. And so they remained silent. And then we see in verse 5, I love this verse, after looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their heart, he told the man, stretch out your hand, so he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now imagine being there. Imagine being in the middle of this, seeing this all take place. Can you imagine that? Like this, this thing that just took place didn't happen last week when we came to synagogue. Seeing a man whose hand was paralyzed didn't happen even two weeks ago. It's not a regular thing. And we're seeing this person stretch out their hand just by the very command of, of another man, of Jesus. He stretches out his hand, and it's restored. It's restored. 
And what really strikes me about verse 5 there is that it says that Jesus looked around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their heart. And I think about that, and I think about, you know, most of us, when we think about anger, it's a negative thing, right? We're not supposed to be angry, are we? But we all know that Paul tells us, in your anger, do not sin. And I think what Jesus is feeling is a righteous anger. He's looking around at the Pharisees saying, you guys are the teachers of the law. You are so focused on just keeping the law that you miss the spirit of the law. You, more than anyone, should know what right and wrong is. You're the experts. You can, you've got it memorized. You can quote it from front to back, back to front. You can quote it. You, more than anyone, should know what the law is and what it intends to say. Yet you're missing it. And so he begins to be angry because they're the leaders and they're leading people in the wrong direction. But then as he continues to look around, he feels sorrow. His heart is broken because they've missed it. They're missing God. And that brings sorrow to Jesus because of the hardening of their hearts. He then heals this man. And again, I I don't know if this man was planted. It doesn't tell us that. Uh, we don't know if this man even asked to be healed. There's no indication that he even asked to be healed. I wonder if Jesus was just teaching and he spotted the man and then he said, you know what, I'm going to fix this. It's within my power to fix this. I'm going to fix it. I don't even know if that man was the only one there that day who needed healing. But for whatever reason, Jesus instructs the man, stand up. And I imagine the man, probably with his paralyzed, withered hand, is keeping it close to his vest. He's, he's, em, he's embarrassed. He's got it close to his chest. He doesn't want anyone to see. Maybe he's covering it with his other arm. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And he stretches out his hand, and it's completely restored. Again, we see the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Yet there were some who, even though they witnessed this miracle, missed it. And it's the Pharisees again. Verse 6 It says, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They missed it. They were completely unwilling to see the truth because of their commitment to tradition, to their commitment to keeping rules and to checking a box. They were unwilling and blinded to be able to see the truth and the power of who Jesus really was. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about Colossians 3.23 where it says that it's got a long list of things. It goes back all the way through Colossians beginning in chapter 3 and Paul lists all these things and he says, look, all of these physical things have the appearance of wisdom. Like, I can not smoke, drink, or chew or go with those who do, right? That's what they said in our church growing up. And I can do all those things and I can not use the bad language and I can do all these things and have the appearance of wisdom. But if I don't have that relationship with God, then I've missed it. And as I thought about this, that this week, what I realized is that you can be devoted to the things of God, yet miss the heart of God. You can be devoted to the things of God, yet miss the heart of God. And I think that's exactly where the Pharisees were. I think they were so devoted to the things that they thought God wanted that they were missing God's true heart for people. God's true heart for people to acknowledge him, to acknowledge their own sinfulness and begin a relationship with him through faith. And they were missing it. They were missing out. They wanted to follow God. They wanted to be like him, but they were still missing it. Now, I don't think any of us here would ever say 
I want to be a Pharisee. No one here, like we all know that the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? The Pharisees have always been the bad guys. They got it wrong. And no, no one ever sets out to say, you know what? I'm going to be a Pharisee. Like I'm just going to be the most judgmental and I'm going to check all the boxes and that's what I think God wants for me. None of us would say that, but I think all of us have a tendency to be there. Remember, they were the center of the Jewish religion and they thought they were keeping what God wanted. They thought they knew what God wanted from them, yet they missed it. And I started thinking about that, that they missed God's love for his people. They missed God's mercy and his grace towards people, and they focused just on checking that box. Because, in my opinion, having a box to check is easier than living in that gray area. Have you ever been there? Like, there's this, this gray area of grace and mercy and for, for me, it's easy to check the box and say, okay, I did my quiet time today. But it's more difficult when maybe my schedule gets busy and, and I didn't get to read my, my, the Bible verse for the day, the, the passage for the day, and all I got to do is spend time in the Word. And it's easy to be down on myself and say, you are a bad Christian because you didn't read your Bible today. But there's grace and there's mercy there, and so I wake up and I strive the next day. Okay, I'm going to get back in the Word. I need to be back in the Word today. There's that gray area that we live in where it's not so black and white. There's not a box to check. And what we see, again, is that you can be a devoted follower of God, yet completely miss it, completely miss his heart. And I I was thinking about this this week. There's been a couple movies that have come out recently um, about a time in our recent history when you had Christians on, on either side of the argument But there was a group of Christians who they thought they were acting in the name of Jesus Christ. They thought they were doing what God wanted. They were even using scripture to support their position. Yet they were completely missing the heart of God. Take a look at this clip from one of those movies. is messed up. Yeah, anything serious happened, they shut the school down and our season go down the drain. This here real messed up. But there are a lot of pretty women here. Hey. Look at them, Gary. They hate us. Nah. Just a bad day. Things have cooled down. No, Gary. They're always gonna hate us. We don't need you here either, hippie boy. Did you hear what he said? Hey, man. Hey, Julius. Man, it's crazy out here, man. Yeah, well, what did you expect? I don't know. I ain't quite expected to be like this. Nah. Sorry. Julius, this is Emma. Camp over now, huh? Back to the real world, Bertia. Some of you in this room are old enough to have lived through that, and you can remember that. I have only learned about it through, through textbooks, through reading, 
It was, a, it was an awful time in our country. And again, people on either side, there were people, the only reason the civil rights movement went forward was because of the strong conviction of some people who moved that forward, that this is not right, this, this needs to change. We are created, all created in the image of God, and we need to move forward with that. Yet on the, on the opposite side, there were others who were, in the name of Jesus, using Scripture, thinking they were in the right standing opposed to this movement where they had missed the heart of God. And as I thought about, you know, uh, Selma that's recently come out a couple years ago, the movie The Help, and then Remember the Titans, one of my favorite movies, and and I think back um, of what it must have been like. And I wonder, if I had lived in that time, where would I have fallen? Would I have seen it clearly, as clearly as we see it looking back 40 years later? Would I have missed it? Would I have missed it? And then I think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And I think as they were witnessing Jesus' minister, maybe there was something that caused them to miss it. And as I, I reflected on that even a little bit further this week, I began to think about what things in my own life have I put up to as boxes to check and rules to follow that caused me to miss the heart of God. And I started thinking, well, is there some big, like, big issue that I'm missing out, that maybe the church, why, you know, universal is missing out on, that, that we, we are blinded by our traditions? And, and to be honest, nothing really came to my mind. It doesn't mean that there's not something, but nothing really came to my mind. But what did come to my mind were all the small ways. You know, I almost heard the voice of God. It's like I heard God saying, okay, Chuck, you're too focused on the big things that the whole church, you need to focus on yourself. You need to focus on where you personally are missing it. And he showed me a couple places where I'm missing it. And the funny thing is that he showed me that I'm often more willing to give grace to people who are outside of the church than the people who are in the church and not, not necessarily in areas of sin, but my tendency is that, well, if you're not sharing the gospel as often as me, then there's something wrong with you. Like, if you're raising your hands before, like, as soon as Stephen hits that first chord and you raise your hands, like, I'm judging you. Or if you're not raising your hands in the middle of this powerful chorus, then it's like, what's wrong with you? You know, and there's that tendency to be judging people on these issues and to miss the heart of God to miss the heart of God for extending that grace and that mercy. And I was reminded of, of one of my favorite books that I read in the last two years is a book called The Accidental Pharisees, right? Like we said, no one sets out to be a Pharisee. Accidental Pharisee, and I love this book. It says at the very back, it says, Following Jesus is not a race to see who can be the most radical, sacrificial, knowledgeable, or burnout for Jesus. It's simply doing what he calls us to do, whether it's radical and crazy or simple and mundane. And I love this book. It, it shed a lot of light on me. And after I read it, I uh, actually had to order a new copy this week because I, I gave my copy to someone else uh, that was all marked up. And, and I'm looking forward to reading it again and marking this copy up and locking it in a vault so no one can ever take it from me. Uh, but I read Accidental Pharisees, and then I realized I needed to go out and get this book, which is 12 Steps for the Recovering Pharisee Like Me. Uh, and so, if you're familiar with the 12-step programs, uh, they have a lot of great insight, and they just walk you through, you know, hey, your first step is this, and I love what it says. Step one, we admit that our single most unmitigated pleasure is to judge other people. 
our single most unmitigated pleasure is to judge other people. And I thought about that, and I'm like, well, I don't know that it's the single most pleasure. I mean, there's always chocolate cake and ice cream. I don't know, but, but up there, close to the very top, is our tendency to immediately begin judging other people, to immediately begin labeling people and begin putting them in boxes. And it's, it's possible for me at times to miss it as the Pharisees did. And I find that there's, there's a couple ways to overcome that. I mean, every single one of us, we, we want to look at the syllabus and know how to compare and compete and what do I have to do to get over the bar. I think all of us have that tendency But in my personal life, what I find is this, that usually the times that I'm most judgmental is when I'm convicted of my own sin a little bit, and I immediately want to look around and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I'm not doing the things that she's doing. God, you must be so happy with me. And I begin with that sin in my own life, and then that sin begins to turn into guilt, and guilt becomes shame. And then before I know it, I'm comparing with other people, and I'm judging them, and I've become a Pharisee. And I think that's exactly what we see in Mark chapter 3. No one set out to become a Pharisee. No one set out to become that rule follower and box checker. But as they did, they began to miss the heart of God. And as I thought about that this week, Uh, something really stood out to me in verse 3, verse 5 of chapter 3. And it says, After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their heart. Most translations say hardness, but I believe a better translation is hardening. I believe what Jesus was seeing as he looked into them was not that their heart was already hard, but it was continually getting harder and harder and harder and harder that the more they saw of Jesus, the, the less they were willing to let go of their other things in their life. And so their heart just continued to get harder and harder and harder and harder. And it's the idea of a callus to where nothing could penetrate it. Nothing could get into their hearts. And I thought, you know, what is the cure for this? What is, what is it that I have to do to avoid a hardening heart? Because I think we can all admit we want to avoid a hardening heart. So I asked myself, what must I do to avoid a hardening heart? And here's three things that I came up with. The first one is this. I must be painfully aware of my own tendency to judge others. Whether they're believers or unbelievers, I must be painfully aware of my own tendency to judge others and ask God every day to show me that. Here's here's what I would encourage you to do if this is you and you have this tendency. Uh, What I would love for every single one of us to do this week is to take a note card just like this, and put it in your pocket. And whenever you find a thought running through your mind or words about to come out of your mouth where you're being judgmental towards someone else, just put a little tally mark there, right? Just one little tally mark every single time. Whether that person is right in front of you or they're not around and you have that thought or those words come out, just put a little tally mark. Do that on Monday, right? Do that on Tuesday. Get a new card and do it on Tuesday. Wednesday, get another new card. And at the end of the week, just tally up how many there are there. And then set the goal. Okay, God, next week there's going to be fewer. Next week there's going to be fewer. Help me, Lord. Help me to reduce this in me. The third thing, the second thing is that I have to be aware of my own tendency to judge others, and then I need to turn my attention outward. 
I need to turn my attention from myself, right? I need to stop focusing just on me and how good I am and focus on the people around me. How can I serve them? How can I love them? How can I help them take their next step in their walk with God? And I think a big part of that is this, this third one, which is I need to turn my attention to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ needs to be the center focus of my attention. Who he is and what he's done. When I focus on, focus on his grace and his mercy and his death on the cross on behalf of my sin, those times when I look at the sin in my life and I'm tempted to look at someone else and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. If I'm focused on the cross of Jesus Christ, I'm reminded that, hey, my sin is forgiven. Their greatest need is for their sin to be forgiven as well. What can I do to help them take that step, to begin that relationship with Jesus Christ? And Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 came to my mind this week as I read this. And it says this. It says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares us. Did you catch that? Lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares us. Paul is saying, look, don't be tripped up even by your own sin. Jesus Christ has already paid for that. Yes, you ask for forgiveness. Yes, you continually come before God and acknowledge your own sinfulness, but don't let it weigh you down. Don't let it stop you moving forward in relationship with God. Let us throw off everything that so easily entangles and ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. That is the key. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. May we be a church that is focused on Jesus. Because when we focus on Jesus, our hearts change. Our hearts change and they begin to line up with God's heart. And it makes it harder to miss God's heart when our heart is lined up with him. May we be a church. May we be a church that is focused on Jesus. May we be individuals who are focused on Jesus so that we don't miss what God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity, God, uh, just to be reminded of our own tendencies, again, to, to judge others. And Lord, we pray that you would protect us from being like the Pharisees whose hearts were hardened and hardening towards you. God, show us the areas of our life that we look for boxes to check where we reduce a beautiful relationship with you with just a set of rules to follow. May we never, God, may we never set aside the pursuit of holiness and righteousness, Lord, but may that not be what we base our relationship with you on. May our relationship with you be based on the grace and mercy you demonstrated through your son, Jesus Christ, which we receive through faith in him. Lord, give us your eyes to see this week how we might focus on you and how we might look towards the others around us and demonstrate your love to them, to verbally share your love for them. Lord, give us your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.